0: Hello everybody, this is podcast number eight of Smart Choices for a Happier Family Life. Hello everyone, and welcome to Smart Choices for a Happier Life, where it's a community of people working together for social good. Let's share love, peace, and let's talk. Here's your host, Pamela Chambers. Good morning, everybody. The big holidays are over, and now we're getting close to Valentine's Day. Today's guest is perfect for Valentine's Day. Today we have Lisa A. Phillips on with us. She is the author of a really good book. It's called Unrequited Women and Romantic Obsession. And this book is really all about the power of love and how it's possible to actually become obsessed with your lover. So for all those unrequited lovers for Valentine's Day, it is a really good book on painful breakups and how painful they actually can be and how to heal after a breakup. Lisa is a professor of journalism at Sunny New Pauls and the author of Public Radio, Behind the Voices. Her articles have appeared in many national publications, including the New York Times, Psychology Today, Cosmopolitan, and the Boston Globe. So let's get started and welcome Lisa Phillips. All right, everybody. Let's get started. I want to welcome Lisa Phillips. And Lisa, how are you today?
1: I'm very well. Thank you, Pamela.
0: All right. Now, you work at New Paltz State University in New York, correct?
1: Yes. Where
0: is that university? It's
1: it's actually called the State University of New York at New Paltz or SUNY New Paltz, and it's in New Paltz, New York, which is the Hudson Valley region, and it's... um, it's about an hour and a half's drive from Manhattan.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I'm, Lisa has written a book, like I introduced her earlier. She has written a book called Unrequited Women and Romantic Obsession. And I just want to tell Lisa that I love the book, and I am a mental health therapist, and it's going to be very useful in my practice. I just want you to know that.
1: That's wonderful. That's a real honor to hear.
0: Well, you know, it's a great book, especially for Valentine's Day. And the re- the reason I love it, it's it's a great read, but it's really about, I know it talks about women who become obsessive with their love, but the reason I loved it so much too, it really talks about the power of love and actually how powerful it is. And what was your inspiration behind this book?
1: The inspiration for the book was that the year I turned 30, I had a very powerful experience of unrequited love. I fell for a man who was involved with someone else. We did grow quite close, but he remained involved with this other woman and, um, did not want to be involved with me. And I became completely obsessed and did things that I wish I hadn't done. Uh, certainly felt things I wish I hadn't felt. And The obsession did end, fortunately, and my life went on and became really, by most standards, a very normal life. I got married, I had a child, I'm still married, I've been married for 13 years almost. Um, And over time, I just started to think, what in the world happened to me? You know, I'm basically sane here, but this thing really threw me for a loop. And I'm a journalist, so I did what journalists do, which is to investigate. Phenomena. And so I took on unrequited love.
0: So, when you were obsessed, what sort of snapped you out of it?
1: Well, I think it was a combination of factors. Um, It took a while, it took several months for me to move out of it. And I think by the time I moved out of it, a couple of things were going on. I was completely exhausted by this process. You know, it got me up early in the morning. So much mental energy went into it. I spent so much time on it, and nothing was happening. Um, meaning, a relationship wasn't wasn't happening. And then finally, at one point, I just really um, pestered this person. I called a lot, called constantly, practically. I remember over one um, series of days, I was on a road trip, and I called him from payphones and left messages. This was a time when. There were pay phones and people left messages. And then finally, at one point, I actually reached him. He picked up the phone and he just said, I'm cutting you off. We can never speak again. And for me, at that point, being so exhausted, getting so little return and hearing those words, those words were very important. I needed to be cut off. And so that was really mercy for me. And I started to move out of the obsession.
0: What do you think helped you then move out of the obsession? How did you sort of, you know, it's kind of like that must have been a fatal blow to you. So what were the next weeks after that?
1: I was really ready for that fatal blow. Sometimes um, when you don't have any more choices, and he just basically cut off my choices, that is the best thing. And as it turns out, um, I found in researching my book that there are therapeutic approaches that encourage precisely that. If that person that you love doesn't cut off contact, you should if you're obsessed because anything out there, any kind of response is going to feed your obsession. Um So for me, that was really, really key. Um, it, it actually was less painful before, it was sorry, it was more painful before he cut me off. After he cut me off, uh, there was this kind of quiet in my soul suddenly. It was like, okay, this is really done. Um, and so I was ready to move on. And I kind of felt like you feel after you've been through a long and difficult, journey or stressful time um, I had to learn to eat properly again to connect with people again um, and just to resume my life I was working on a book at the time I was um, needing to make some changes in, in my career and I just started working on those things
0: so when he cut you off it was kind of like it forced you to focus somewhere else
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. And I should add that um, not that long after he cut me off, I met the man who eventually became my husband, which is not any kind of recipe for people. (laughs) This isn't always going to happen, and sometimes rebounds aren't so good. But in this case, meeting this man who truly was good to me throughout, Uh, we were long distance for a while, so that gave me a lot of space to both recover from my you know, the wake of my obsession and also to get to know him in a kind of more safe way. Um, in my case, fortunately, it worked out and it, it, did, it did catalyze that process of recovery because I felt loved and I was loved by a person who knew how to love me and wanted to love me.
0: Right. And, and a lot of people will say, well, don't get involved right away. But in a way, you did it slowly and you progressed slowly, which sort of helped you grow in the meantime.
1: Exactly. There were things I had to deal with over time while I was in the relationship with my husband, um, you know, before we married. You know, just learning how to be a little more self-sufficient, to to work on my own emotional needs instead of always depending on a partner to, to fix my problems. And I did work on those things um, in the context of the relationship. And there's something else that's very interesting, Pamela, which is that there there are there's, there's, there's some new research about rebounds, and they're not as bad for you as, as the common wisdom has always indicated. Um, sometimes they can be just fine. so it, it can be all right.
0: Yeah, because relationships are really people growing machines. I mean, they are what the most powerful thing we have in our lives to allow us to grow and learn more about ourselves and become better partners.
1: Exactly. We are supposed to love. We're programmed to love. It doesn't always have to be romantic love. Uh, fostering other strong ties in your life can also have a very powerful effect. Family ties, friend ties, community ties, but love is, um, has many many good sides when it's not obsessive, of course.
0: Exactly. And, you know, we talk about society. You talked about romantic love and things like that. And our society really does perpetuate unrequited love, correct?
1: It does perpetuate unrequited love. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Unrequited love makes a fantastic story. I mean, how many TV series can you think of that basically go on and on and on based on will these two people get together or won't they? And then when they do to get, get together, often the series ends, or has to end. You know, the, the excitement is gone. Um, we gravitate as human beings toward quests, toward unanswered questions, toward suspense, and unrequited love gives us all of those things. Um, and so um, that can be quite, a, you know, a wonderful kind of story. I think the problem comes when we buy into... Um, intensely to the myths surrounding unrequited love, such as the biggest one is that unrequited love is always going to end happily. You are eventually going to get the person you've been yearning for. And in life, that's simply not true. So um, we have to know, all right, it's a great story. It's romantic. It's exciting to yearn for someone, but it doesn't always work out. And it can go off the tracks and become obsessive under certain conditions
0: right? And the real key would be an unrequited love. How do, you know, when do we know when to stop? You know, that's the tough piece, you know, because they can, you know, they can go obsessed, you know, for years sometimes.
1: Yeah, it is hard to know where the line is. Uh, we are encouraged to be persistent in life. We're encouraged to go for what we want. If we don't uh, make it the first time, we're supposed to try and try again. This is true in work. It's true in creative endeavors. And sometimes it is indeed true in love, but there is a line out there, which is if you are interfering in an unwanted and persistent way in somebody's life, that is an excessive obsession. If your own life is being interfered with by your obsession, that is excessive. Uh, if you can't function, if you can't think about anything else, if you're feeling self-destructive or feeling destructive urges toward other people, whether they be the beloved or someone in his or her life, then um, you've crossed a line, and that's no good.
0: Yeah, I've always said to my clients, you know, how do we know something's abnormal? You know, it's it's like there's normal. Well, everybody's normal is different. So how do we know when something's abnormal? I always say when it interferes in our life, and it interferes in what we want to need out of our life. If it's interfering in your schoolwork, if it's interfering in your job, well, then maybe it is abnormal.
1: Exactly. And there there is a fundamental, all-consuming nature to passionate love. That's what brings us together. That's part of how it works for many, many people. Um, but there really is, I think, you know, people say it's not clear, it's not clear, it's not clear. But when there's... Aggression involved, when there's anger involved, when there's a, a kind of self-centeredness involved that is driving you despite what the other person says, then that's just no good. yeah it's, just, it's not love anymore.
0: Yeah, love isn't supposed to hurt so badly.
1: No, not, not that badly. And I remember actually thinking about that when I was obsessed. It's like, well, if we actually do get together and the situation has caused me this much pain. How am I going to integrate that into the story of our love, you know?
0: Right, exactly. Now, you say in the book I read, you know, how women and men are treated very differently when it comes to obsessive love. Can you tell the audience a little more about how they're treated differently and maybe why?
1: I think it has mainly to do with the image in our culture of a a man obsessed with love versus a woman obsessed with love a woman obsessed with love especially unrequited love is a disturbing figure in our culture we don't really quite know what to do with her whereas men we kind of do we can see okay he's really getting scary he's stalking or wow isn't this romantic he's trying so hard he's bringing her flowers it's a beautiful thing but when women get hung up um, we tend to judge them more harshly and understand them less and I'll explain what I mean. I think with women, you know, they're the ones with the time-bound reproductive systems they're the ones who are supposed to be practical. And getting hung up on someone who doesn't love you back is not practical. It's a waste of time, right? Because you should be moving on and finding more promising prospects. So there's that. You know, they're judged for um, not being practical and not respecting, you know, the processes of their bodies or, or paying attention, rather, to the processes of their bodies, reproductively speaking. Um, and then I also think there's something larger, which is that... Um, the selfishness of unrequited love, that kind of unbridled state of I want this, is much more disturbing in our culture uh, when it, it's a woman feeling it than when it's a man. Uh, we tend to think more that a man isn't entitled to these feelings, and a woman is not. It, it frightens us in a woman. So what we tend to do as a result is is we mock women. We turn them into bunny-boiling stalkers in our films and other forms of popular culture, or we say they're neurotic spinsters who just can't make good good you know choices in their lives. Um, and so one of the reasons I wrote this book and focused it on women's experiences of unrequited love is that I wanted to bring that understanding and that respect um, and that awareness to the, the question of, of a woman in obsessive love.
0: Yeah, you can see, you know, women, men are supposed to pursue, but women are not.
1: Yeah, that's what our culture says still, you know, right. even all the equal opportunities we supposedly have in the workplace and, and, and so forth. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think there still is a kind of double standard for courtship. And when a woman is very persistent in her feelings, um, and certainly in her actions, it disturbs us because it destroys that and threatens that um, image that we have of how men and women are supposed to behave in the mating game.
0: Yeah, and I think your research said that we pursue basically at the same rate.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, Unwanted pursuit and even wanted pursuit, like courtship situations. Um, Men and women both participate in, um, at rival rates certainly, you know, just on the kind of normal end, 40% of women say that they've initiated relationships, and that's quite a lot. That's, you know, that's not just sitting back and being passive. Um, And then when it comes to unwanted pursuit, trying harder to get someone's attention, women and men also um, pursue at, at rival rates. And surprisingly, some categories of pursuit, including violence, women do more often than men, at higher rates than men.
0: Um, you mean more higher rates really of violence?
1: Just, yeah, yeah. Oh, actual, wow. Actual violence in pursuit, you know. Wow.
0: The, the, I'm sorry? I said, wow, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's... it's um, it's interesting because certainly men will get arrested and um, and so forth for stalking at much higher rates than women. It's like one out of 10 uh, stalkers is, is female. But when it comes to things like kicking, um, slapping, choking, um, there are a couple of studies out there that show that. Women are doing this at higher rates than men. Now, I will add something to that. You know, these are mainly studies of college age people in college settings, um, and that is a very particular time in people's lives, and there's only a certain degree to which you can extrapolate that to the general population. And so I don't necessarily like to say women are more violent than men when it comes to relationship pursuit but that there are signs out there and studies out there that indicate that um that even when it comes to violent pursuit behavior women are um you know perpetuating this at rival rates to men
0: wow and uh, it's interesting because i want to talk a little bit about you know stalking and social media and you know There is really a difference because I do, we hear it a lot now, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out on Facebook, looking at his page day in and day out, you know, we broke up, I'm seeing what he's doing. And what is the difference? though? there really is a difference between stalking and, you know, constantly surfing Facebook.
1: Sure. I mean, Facebook's book stalking has become a kind of urban slang now. I think most of us know what it means. It means we're checking the profile and the status updates and following other forms of social media. And those worlds can be very engrossing and time-consuming for someone who's obsessed. There is no question about it. Um, And there's no question that for some people this is not healthy behavior to keep cruising the digital world for signs of their beloved Um, But it's not really stalking. Stalking is unwanted, persistent behavior that interferes with someone's life um, and harasses them, even though they've said they don't want this kind of attention. And when you're looking at someone's Facebook photos or status updates, that person doesn't know you're not interfering with that person's life. So it's not really stalking.
0: Right. Do you think it impacts them, though, by continuing to look at the Facebook pages?
1: Oh, there's no question that if you're obsessed and this is feeding your obsession, um, it's not going to be healthy behavior. I think most of us have a kind of natural curiosity about exes or, or you know, old flames from high school or what have you. But if you're doing it constantly and you can barely walk across the street because you want to be you know, back online checking things out, um, that is definitely a problem, and what research shows is that um, you know, this can be a kind of form of reinforcement for the obsession. It's, it's not healthy for the obsession to keep checking these things and, and trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, of, of what you see online about the person that you are obsessed with.
0: Right, so it's better to defriend them or unfriend them, I should say.
1: <laughs> yeah, again, that idea, if you're really in trouble with an obsession, cutting off all contact is extremely important.
0: Yeah, you talk about the fundamental narcissism of unrequited love. You know, it's kind of seen as a it's a sense of rebellion, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that it's it's a very complicated thing. Um narcissism is involved absolutely. And what's interesting is that it certainly doesn't feel that way. Often people speak in terms of what they are sacrificing for their beloved, what they're doing to themselves to, to get him. They, they, they see this as, as a kind of losing of the self as opposed to narcissism, which is about self-centeredness. But indeed, um, this obsession is very narcissistic and there's, there's one really clear way that you can see this, which is that you're saying to the the person that you love, "I want you, I want you, I want you," and that person is saying, "I don't want you, I don't want you," or they're being ambivalent, as is often the case. And so already that makes it very clear that it is not about that other person, right? You know, because he or she, in many cases, needs something else, and you can't attend to that. You can only attend to what you need. I see. It's yeah, that sad and focus. what's so interesting is, is that the people I've interviewed will tell me you know, he's narcissistic, he's narcissistic, and that could be the case, but I think one of the biggest messages of my book is stop thinking about what he is, think about what you are, and and what is driving you to get so caught up in this situation, because past a certain point, that narcissism, that self-centeredness of the pursuit can either lead you to do um, destructive things to yourself or to the person that you're chasing, and that's not good.
0: Right, it's like you don't love me, and I'm not going to listen to you.
1: Exactly. Yeah one um, one uh, researcher who who studies stalking said to me, you know that one of the people that he was um, counseling said to him, I don't care, I'm going to have a relationship with her anyway. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I have this person that said no contact with him. So so that that just underscores completely. Um, How this is narcissistic and not, in fact, about self sacrifice as much as it may feel that way.
0: Right. It's like you're trying to get them to tell them what you need. This is what I need, and I'm not, I don't care what you need. It's just all about me.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: Now, you know, love is so powerful. And, you know, you can, when I read this book, the thing I really loved is all the stories, you know, of the pain, and you did such a great job of bringing out compassion and empathy, you know, towards these people. When I read it, I just felt so much compassion for them, you know, because we all can relate to the pain of that breakup, you know, of what it feels like. And at times it made me feel not quite so crazy, you know, because I did similar things, you know, maybe not to the extreme or really act upon them, but it's that pain and anguish that you feel when your lover doesn't want you.
1: Yeah, it is one of the most human of emotions, and I'm so glad you had that response to the stories, because um, most, if not all, of the women I interviewed are, are very sympathetic people. These are not the people who are locked up for, you know, murdering their ex and things like that. That's not an area that I at all felt comfortable going into. I was more interested in the range of normal um, though concerning reactions to um, disappointment in love, to unrequited love. And I think that on a very basic level, the goals that these women had were very good goals. They wanted love. And sometimes they wanted other things that, that, that they associated with the particular person. It's just that the person they were chasing was not the person or the person they were yearning for, because not all the women in my book chased, um, was not going to be able to give them that thing that they
0: wanted. Right. It struck me. I love this quote in your book, and I just want to share it with the audience. It just said, just by your talking about, you know, you said, I'm struck by the rebellious freedom of getting on that train. There's an emotional honesty in these moments. The unwanted woman is doing something instead of sinking into despair. She is swept up by instinct, by the profound human need for attachment which the era of romantic practicality has tried to reduce to a game.
1: Oh, thank you for pulling out that quote. Um, yeah, that is, uh, just to, to give a little bit of context to this, this is a woman who um, w- was having a brief relationship with someone in Germany, who lived eight hours away from her in Germany, and. He um, told her one weekend, very suddenly to her, um, that he didn't love her anymore. And she was completely distraught and wrote him letters and he wouldn't respond. And one day she just hopped on this train to go and tell him how she felt and try to get him back. And um, she was very wrapped up in what psychologists call the protest response. You know, we're we're feeling in grief, so we we try to do something about it to fix it, um, to make the feeling stop. And it is an emotional rebellion, and that's that. I felt that moment in my book to be so important and so risky, because again, you don't want to rebel to the point of stalking someone. But by the same token, there's something very honest and very real. And, and this woman did not indeed stalk and continue to chase this this man. That was it. After she, would you know, saw him after the train ride, um, they spent a night together, and then they never saw each other again. Um, but, um, you know, it's like, we're told to be good girls. We're told not to feel what we feel. And with this young woman alone in Germany, she felt, and she acted on it. And in that way, um, that's something very, very honest that deserves understanding. Um, it also deserves an understanding of the limits of that. Um, but I think that we can carry both ideas in our minds, both that these things are going to happen, that they're very human and that we need to, um, be very aware of when they go too far. I hope that makes sense to you.
0: Oh, it makes perfect sense. And that's how you bring, brought out the compassion. You know, I think in the, for me as a reader, I felt very much compassion for her. You know, I felt her pain. I, I, I could relate to it.
1: Yeah, I think many, many of us can.
0: Oh, my gosh, yes. So let's talk about biology because that, I think, is huge. You know, a lot of people in my office will come in after a breakup and they'll just be totally depleted. They can't eat. They can't sleep. And I'll tell them, hey, you're also going through a chemical withdrawal. It's like a drug withdrawal. And there is a lot of biology in the passion of love, right?
1: Absolutely. In fact, what happens when we're in passionate love is that um – the centers of our brain that are affected, the areas of our brain that are affected, are very much the same as those affected uh, in the process of addiction. Love really is an addiction. Um, The cravings that we feel, all those things, it's the same area, the VTA in the brain, that's activated and generating a substance called dopamine, which um, gets a lot of a lot of attention in the press these days, but it's, it is it is the neurotransmitter that gives us that feeling of yearning and focus and even the euphoria of love. Um, and in unrequited love, the same thing happens. After people have been rejected, that activation still happens and they feel all those feelings of love and intensity of love, but no euphoria, right, because they've just been dumped. And then also areas in the in the brain associated with response to physical pain are activated. Areas associated with deep attachment are activated. Um, and then a part of your brain that is associated with evaluating gains and losses in the pursuit of goals is activated. So you're always thinking, what did I did, do wrong? How could I... Um, How can I fix this? How can I do better next time? So you're really in a very, very needy state um, in your body and in your brain. And it's very difficult.
0: It's very painful.
1: Yes, incredibly painful. And people in adulthood respond to breakups and unrequited love much in a way that babies respond when their beloved caretakers, usually their parents, uh, leave them. Uh, their, their body goes into this very stressed state of, of protest. I want something. I'm going to cry and scream until I get it.
0: Right. And when they behave badly towards us, like if we keep pursuing, 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 you know, and they're saying, no, 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 no. Now, you had talked about goal linking and how that kind of helps us to ignore all of that no, no, no that they're saying. What, what is yeah. that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the neurochemical processes behind love and attachment and unrequited love are incredibly important. Um, but I'm also someone, as a person, as a writer, as a journalist, who is very interested in meaning. And what you find when you look at the uh, research that's been done about unwanted pursuit and unrequited love is that um, people will associate uh, what's called a Higher order goal, you know, say for example, marriage and a family, with a particular person, and theoretically, um, you could get um, those goals of marriage and a family. To again, just to name one example, with somebody else, uh, people divorce and remarry. That's that's perfect proof of that. But the, the goals become so linked that higher order love, uh, higher order goal of love and a family. Uh, becomes just really fixed onto that one person, and that person feels like the last person on earth who could give that to you. And so the feelings become very entrenched, and um, that can be something that uh, pushes someone to pursue and keep trying and trying and trying.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like this is my last chance for marriage or I'll never find someone else quite like this again, and that just keeps us going pushing, pushing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's awful. I mean, that's exactly how I felt. I had been through a series of relationships during my 20s um, that didn't last, and everybody in my life, it seemed, was um, teaming up with someone, having kids, building their families. And I was at a point, I think, in my life of being uh, somewhat socially isolated, and this person, B really felt like... The one. And I I couldn't shake that. I really honestly believe that 100%. Yeah.
0: And it's, I mean, the first thing that people will say when they come into my office after they've broken up is, well, I just don't think I'm going to be able to fall in love again.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I I think that that is often what it feels like.
0: Yeah. The one thing I which I thought was a really good, um, really good information as far as you know, how to help with this pain in a breakup, you call in your book, you said psychologists call heartbreak social pain. And this kind of explained why it hurts so badly. And it also explained, I thought kind of how, you know, it can kind of help us heal in getting reaching out to people having human contact after this and not to socially isolate, which sometimes we tend to want to do.
1: Yeah, I think we live in a really difficult time where we feel we can do a lot of living through our various screens that we carry around, uh, you know, that we carry around on our person that we sit down in front of when we go to work. And, you know, we are living, fewer of us live in, in, in families or in couples or more people living alone than ever before. And so I think that we um, can forget that we are fundamentally social beings and that one adaptation that all of us deal with to a certain degree is when we're ostracized, and this can mean by a peer group, this can mean by a co-worker, this can mean by a family member, and it can certainly mean by a lover. If we're kicked out of, a, of an attachment, we really suffer and the reason we suffer is because fundamentally we need other people to survive. In earlier times we needed them in a very immediate way to help um, gather food, care for children, build shelters, maintain shelters, you know, conduct a community, um, but even now when sure maybe there are lots more people who can spend days and days and days without seeing a person, we still really need other people um, to survive and social pain reminds us of that 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 we should be connected that the love of others in its various forms um that love gives us a very necessary kind of support for our health for our well-being for all kinds of things so it hurts when we get kicked out of uh some kind of social connection
0: yeah i, I always try to tell my clients you know when you do break up if you spend too much time alone, it allows self-loathing to set in. So it's important to get out and be social and remind yourself that you are interesting and funny and all those other things. Be social and just don't spend too much time alone.
1: Yeah, and I think also it's very common when people suffer a breakup for um, the first thing they do to call their best friend or call their mom to to, to reconnect with those Old primary ties that may not have been quite as important during the relationship, and um, you know that that can be the, the source of like, oh, okay, she's calling me now, she needs <laughs> me. But but that's really a great thing to do, and it's also a reminder not to let those ties slip away when you are in love, because love can't exist in a vacuum. You know, there's going to be a point where you need. The help and the support and the insight of other people in your life
0: well what kind of what kind of suggestions can you give to somebody let's say that they're in an, you know an obsessive love what if you know they feel that they're getting out of control what would you know how do they stop it what would you suggest to them what to do
1: I would suggest that if it feels out of control, again, on that level of interfering with your life and or the life of the other person, um, you do want to seek help. Uh, there's some very good forms of therapy out there that um, there's research behind, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, which is often referred to as CBT, which is very programmatic and it helps you assess um why you're so hung up on the person, but more than that, it gives you a really clear path. Okay, if you want to call or if you want to look at a photo to try to move, very, move yourself very gently toward another activity that's going to be healthier for you. Um, and I'm describing it in very brief form. But with the right person guiding you, it can be incredibly effective and actually has been shown to decrease obsessive-compulsive behaviors in people with OCD. And so if it can get into that kind of um, very difficult syndrome that people face and decrease those behaviors, then it can help you when you're obsessed in love as well. Um, And then there are other programmatic approaches as well, like... um, dialectical behavior therapy which helps people learn to sit with their feelings and not act on them and this is particularly helpful for people who are actually stalking uh the person that they're in love with or angry with in certain cases Um, and you know that it helps them see that they don't always have to act on their feelings i think that's that's really a key message of both approaches and it is important to seek help
0: Yeah, I really like like on the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, if if a client would say, well, you know, how can he be the man for you if he doesn't even call you back?
1: Yeah, it's it's just just calling attention to that fundamental paradox of unrequited love. You know, how how can this be the one if if he's not returning messages? He just can't. That's not what people who are the one do.
0: Right. It's kind of like jarring them out of it. You know, it's like they're just so focused, you know, and when they hear those comments repeated back to them, it's like, oh, that I guess you're right. You know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, but I I think one thing I would say is that jarring people out of it, it's a, a different metaphor might be more appropriate because it's really hard. You know, the work of stopping yourself from doing something that feeds the obsession and moving your attention to something else is tough people have described it to me as excruciating and having been through it myself i completely hear what they're saying so it can be really really difficult and you know some people are very lucky they have this kind of awakening or they have this moment like like the moment i had when the person I was in love with just cut me off and I had had enough myself and I was like, all right, I'll let myself be cut off. Um, But for other people, it's just really, really hard work and slow and painful.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a withdrawal, kind of a drug withdrawal plus an emotional um, withdrawal. There's a lot of things going on. Absolutely. So now what can unrequited love teach people? Like, what, what is And one of the questions you try to ask people is, what is your longing trying to tell you?
1: Yeah, that's a really key question. And everyone I interviewed um, really, how can I put it? They were, they were all touched by that question. No one had ever asked that to them. And it was a meaningful experience for them to, to answer it. Um, And they had many, many different answers. Uh, For some people, it was about, you know, one woman I remember, she felt that she would made the wrong life choices, that she had picked a profession that wasn't right for her and didn't accommodate certain needs of hers. And she fell in love with her art teacher, who did have a profession that she felt she would have thrived in. And so loving him was like loving this part of herself that she'd never paid any attention to. Um, so that's a really key question. And I'll say, you know, Pamela, what's so important about this book, um, to emphasize is that I actually really believe in the power of unrequited love. I definitely feel like if it's going haywire and ruining your life, you have to do something with it. But it can also, once you move beyond the emergency obsessive state, you can do a lot with it. You can really use it as a sounding board for yourself as a way to, move yourself into a new space. Uh, One woman left her husband uh, in a marriage that was really fading and and unfulfilling. Um, You know, another woman realized after she'd been widowed that she really could love again, and she knew that the the man she was obsessed with wasn't going to be the person she'd have a mutual love relationship with, but just the feelings she had for him were enough to show her that there was a space in her heart to love again. And that was an incredibly important process for her. And she completely accepted that this man that she was obsessed with wasn't gonna love her back. Um, So I think unrequited love can actually teach us a lot. It can inspire us. Um, Isadora Duncan, the famous dancer of the the earlier 20th century, um, was very inspired by romantic rejection. She credits it as a force that caused her to discover the true essence of dance. Uh, mother of uh, modern feminism, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, She was very inspired, though also very tested uh, emotionally by um, a, a very difficult relationship and unrequited love she had. So it can be incredibly powerful for people.
0: Yeah, I think when you say that question, what is your longing trying to tell us, it's almost like saying what is really missing in your life that you've put so much emphasis here?
1: Yes, exactly. That's exactly it.
0: Gotcha. What and did you find out with your experience?
1: What's missing?
0: What did you find with your experience?
1: Um you know it's interesting. I don't think that there was any um great creative inspiration. I, I, you know it, it, for me as a writer, <laughs> the experience of unrequited love at the very beginning, I remember feeling like, oh, I'm gonna write all day and then I'm gonna call. Be and and that and um, I felt as if I was kind of doing, doing my writing for him for a, a certain time. But that really gave way to obsession, and I think for me it pushed me to understand that I had fallen into um, some not so great ways of thinking about relationships. Um, I was willing to take a lot of not so great stuff from. The people I loved and this had been going on for some time and just kind of came to a peak with with B who was very ambivalent and obviously not giving me the love that I wanted Um, and so when it all was over with him I resolved to make a rule for or I made a rule for myself which was um, that I would only be with someone who could be good to me. Really, really simple rule. I'd never made that rule before, as pitiful as it sounds. But that rule was a very clear guide to me as I navigated my next relationship, which was with uh, my husband.
0: So that was the one way that you evolved into a better place.
1: Yeah, it was, I was finally taking care of myself that way.
0: Oh, good. And I want to end this. I love this quote that you have in your book. It's just beautiful. And I think it really sums up, you know, what your book is trying to teach everybody. You know, it says, we may need to learn as individuals and as a culture ways to honor passion by confining and using it instead of letting it diminish us.
1: Yeah, that is exactly (laughs) it you know that um, we don't have to demand what we want and love we don't have to pursue it to the point of being uh, ruinous we can say I love and what does that give me whether or not the person loves me back
0: Ooh, I like that Lisa now where can people find you your book all that good stuff give us some information where they can find you
1: well, um, the book is out. It's available for order. And uh, hopefully it's at a local bookstore. And if it's not, I hope uh, your listeners will ask for it, because that's a good way to get books out. And I have a website. It's LisaAPhillips.com. So there are two A's in there and two L's. Um, and I'm on Twitter, at LisaAmyPhillips. And also there's a Facebook page for unrequited women and romantic obsession. So I try to to make the book very easy to be found and information about me easy to be found.
0: Right, and I'll have your information in my show notes on my website, PamelaChambers.com, you know, with clicks and easy access as well for the audience.
1: Terrific. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been
0: fabulous. And it's a great book for Valentine's Day. My good goodness, it's all about love, the power of it.
1: Yeah, I think that Valentine's Day, with all its candies and flowers, um, definitely forgets about the unrequited lover, and this is a book for those who aren't having that uh, hallmark fantasy Valentine's Day, but uh, still have hearts and minds that need uh, our respect and our care.
0: Exactly. Well, I really thank you for the book and for a chance to speak to you and share all this beautiful information with my audience, Lisa. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me. All right, my dear. Well, everybody, I hope you really enjoyed that show. I know I did. Well, this book is really, really good, you guys, and it's packed with research and real life stories. The stories provoked really such great compassion in me. This book's research really explains just how powerful love is and why, and also why we need to honor that passion and not let it diminish us. Again, I hope you guys enjoyed that show. Lisa was great. And please check my show notes at pamelachambers.com for more information on where to find Lisa and her book and any other ideas in the show. Thanks for listening. And this is Pamela Chambers signing off. Peace, love, and let's talk. Thanks for listening to Smart Choices for a Happier
1: Life at pamelachambers.com. Wishes for you to have a blessed day. Just for you to have a blessed day